It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is Rabbi Sanford Axelrod. He's spiritual leader of congregation near Tamid in Henderson. COVID has touched so many lives, and as a spiritual leader, Rabbi Axelrod has had to deal with the effects and the after effects of the virus. What began with one essay to his congregation, Love in the Time of Corona, turned into a weekly communique. Now Rabbi Axelrod has put 100 of these essays focusing on themes of hope, resilience, and the importance of pulling together as a community into his new book, Love in the Time of Corona, available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Rabbi Axelrod, go to lvnirtamid.org, and this conversation is the first one that will be released on both of my websites and platforms, Talk About Las Vegas with Ira and Ira's Everything Bagel. Rabbi, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Ara. Absolutely. So did you know once one essay became another and then another that you would have a book at the end? I had no clue. Everything kind of came together. The essays, which seemed to write themselves for the last couple of years, and then I had a sabbatical. And so during the sabbatical, I said, you know what? I'm going to have some fun, but also I want to do something a little academic. And it took a while, but I was able to put all the essays together edit them, review them, rewrite them a little, and now we have a book. Yeah. Well, when you started to review them and go over them again and put them together for the book, did it hit you the same way it hit you when you first wrote them and delivered them to the congregation? I know it was a different time because COVID was very strong at that moment, and we're in a sort of post-COVID world if you want to call it that. So it's less well, less of Learning to live with the virus world, I guess. That's even a better description, right? Right. So what's an interesting thing about these essays in the book, the congregants said, Rabbi, you know, we're so afraid. We don't know what's going to happen. Would you please write a letter to the congregation and give us hope? So that was the first one about love. And, you know, is love stronger than fear? Is fear stronger than love? That was the first theme because we were all so afraid. And then, of course, as you mentioned, one essay became two and three. So if you look at the book, it will take you on this roller coaster of emotions that we all went through. And maybe we have chosen to forget, but it's really our 9-11 or our Great Depression. It is the biggest thing that has happened in our lifetime. And... When you look at these essays, they hold up to chronicle those feelings, but also it turns out that the messages are eternal. We all, we, we find other things to be afraid of. We, you know, racism is still here. At the end of the book, we just get into the Ukrainian Russian war. Um, but there, before that, there was a war in the Middle East and, and then there was the masking and then the unmasking and then the fatigue of it all. Like, like, I have one essay, I'm over it in the time of Corona, like enough already. <laughs> so I think they hold up as individual essays. And when I reread them, the messages are still speak to me, but they also remind me of times that were much more dire. Absolutely. Yeah. Was there a balancing act between your message on the one hand applying to the larger community and on the other hand, your message that 
communicates to the Jewish community and to Judaism because there there's elements obviously that explain why Judaism is important when in several of your essays you talked about that. How did you decide to not bifurcate it but or maybe the words combine the two so it's both to a larger community and to the Jewish community? Well, I think my intent was really originally the Jewish community. But as with everything for example, I'll have an essay that talks about the first time I do a funeral, and there's no one at the funeral because of COVID. There's the deceased, there's me, and a camera. Well, that's universal. That happened to everybody. You know, they lost a loved one, whether they're Jewish or not. And so experiencing loss in the time of COVID, unfortunately, is universal. Canceling or postponing a bar mitzvah. Well, in other faith traditions, it might be, do we have a wedding or do we postpone it till COVID is over? So even though some of these essays, maybe uh, 25% of them are couched with Jewish language, the themes apply to everybody. Mm -hmm. And what's rewarding is my sisters and other fans would just send these essays out to people who aren't Jewish, and they, they said that spoke to them. So I'm really grateful about that. Did you yourself share, because you're involved in the interfaith community, did you share some of these essays and or the book with some of your colleagues in that community, and did you get feedback? There are like three really good friends, and I would send weekly those essays. And then the other essays, it would be kind of if I thought about maybe this would be something that would touch them. I was a little judicious because I thought, well, they're all writing their own essays. But when I was especially proud or I thought the theme was universal, yeah, I would share it with them. And now that the book has come out, I'm waiting for our next board meeting so that I can uh, pass it out and, and let these folks know that uh, I've published something. Uh, I hope they'll be excited for me. Did you give it would be a lot of fun. Did you give them permission to borrow some of your sermons for their congregations? <laughs> <laughs> They're always welcome. Just give me credit, okay? Yes, of course. At, at a royalty, of course. Unless yes. what's that new thing? The uh, artificial intelligence. Right. AI. Uh, a sermon in the spirit of Rabbi Axelrod in the time of Corona, but with a Lutheran message. And see what the computer spits out. <laughs> That's a great concept. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> there is a satisfaction. I've talked to many authors over the years. There is a satisfaction of when you write a book that, A, there's, and I, this is a recurring thing with me and guests, is there, there's a sense of being immortal when, once you write a book, because unlike a newspaper or magazine uh, where you've written an article or something like that, a book is much more permanent. And so it outlives you in a way in which is there's the immortality, but at the same time, it lives separate from you as well. So it's going to have an impact on people that read it who may not know who you are. Do you ever think about that? Well, now that you mentioned it, I'm <laughs> going to think about it. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, that's what, I, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> actually, actually, truthfully, I have thought about it. And I thought, well, how will the book hold up? You know, I would talk with my grandma and she'd always go about the Great Depression. You'd talk with someone else, they'd talk about Vietnam. So these kids who are growing up today, say they were, you know, 10, 12, 15, 20 during the time of COVID, and it changed their whole life. And someday they'll be old and they'll try to explain what happened to their grandchildren and how they were literally, you know, 
taking mail and leaving it out for three days before they would touch it or they would buy groceries and we would wipe it wipe down. Off, right. right. Were you, were you guys nuts? Right. Cause we, we, we just didn't know how it was contagious right. and you wore masks and well, some people believed in them. Some said the masks were not worth, you know, and the country got divided. And that's, that's a whole part of this discussion. But the point is they can go to this book and like I said, it's going to reveal some of this history, but also with a spiritual message. I tried every single essay to have a little bit of a punch at the end, whether it was about hope or resiliency or the, the importance of coming together, because I was very much aware that the society was divided. How did we get COVID? Was, was it in a lab? Was it through this you know, meat market in, in there. Do we wear masks? Do we not? Do we send kids to school? Do we keep them home? We, we just didn't have a universal message that worked for everybody, which is unusual because usually when there is a war, a country comes together. And in this particular war, the country still remained divided on approach, even though there, whether we liked it or not, the government would say, this is what you must do. You got to close the schools. You got to do this. In retrospect, we're going to learn a lot, you know, and we'll maybe we'll decide what was right, what was wrong. But going through it, the society went through things, really reacting to fear, the unknown, and hopefully, you know, what we thought was the best thing to protect everyone. No one wanted to, quote, die. And as we said at the start of the show, we're learning now to live with it. So I'm this past week, I know seven people who've got COVID and they're not panicking. They're sick for a few days and then they go on with their life. So it's still an issue. People still die of COVID. But now, thank God, you know, we're learning to live with it. It'll be like the flu, which is what we thought it would morph into. Do you think that your book has, I like that word bifurcated, I mentioned it earlier. It's of two elements. One is for those who are not into history. So when they look at your book 20, 30 years from now, and they're trying to communicate to their grandkids what happened back then, as others told us about World War II, et cetera, that right. that's that one element. But the other element is the lessons within the book about right. love and acceptance and, and a lot of other things that we can talk about. Those are enduring and spiritual qualities that are they're timeless. So that's the part, I think, of your book that will last longer than trying to communicate the tenor of the times. That's very difficult under any circumstances. Yeah, that's what I think. I hope it's going to be amazing that somehow I'm going to be successful in doing both. But you're right. I hope the messages are timeless to a large extent. They're universal, even if sometimes the language is couched in, in Jewish terms or maybe in more, quote, religious terms, because I might quote from the Bible. But I, I do quote from secular sources, but more from... Right. More Jewish sources, yeah. Mm -hmm. Getting to the process of writing writing the book, well, it's, you're really writing a weekly essay, so it's not writing the book. The, there was a separate process, as you, as you talked about, get putting the book together for, or getting the material together to publish as a book. But when you were in the in the moment writing it once a week and thinking about it, did you try to get ahead of yourself so that you wouldn't be panicking to write an essay? In other words, did you come up with, for example, two, three, four ideas ahead of time so that you could know that you had something to write about? Or did you just go by the seat of your pants, in a sense, and said, okay, this is what I'm thinking about today having to do with corona? 
It turned out it was week to week. Ah. So the essays were published on my website on Tuesdays and the temples on Wednesday. So on Sundays, I would just, it would, I don't know how to describe it, Ira. It was a feeling. Maybe a headline touched me. Maybe a Jewish holiday was coming up. Maybe it was a conversation and people were talking about these stupid masks and, you know, people would hold their masks right below their nose. Right. And we'd all say, no, pull it up. Right. And then we had a mask that, you know, that mask actually does nothing because it's not one of those fancy masks. Well, it's better than nothing, you know, because those other ones, they suffocate me and I'm, you know, I have allergies. We were all over the place. And so if I heard these themes, because people mentioned them, you know, three, four or five times, it was the universe speaking to me. And I'd say, well, what's the spiritual message of it? So to me, a mask is a metaphor, right? If I have to wear a mask, the only thing that I could see is the eyes. So now, now we're looking at each other, perhaps for the first time, eye to eye. And the eye is the, is the window to the soul. So you might think at first, oh, I can't read the guy's lips because we unintentionally read lips. What, what is he saying? And I can't do that anymore. But you can see the eyes. So what does it mean to be seen and what does it mean to, to see? Or another whimsical essay, because I tried to do a little bit of wit and whimsical, is we all got cabin fever. So finally I got off my, my duff and I said, I'm going to walk the dog. Well, that was the source of several essays. One was meeting your neighbors, <laughs> you know. Another one was walking the dog. And uh, the essay turned out to be not that the dog was, that I was walking the dog, but the dog was walking me. Right. That this sensitive animal knew that I, I was getting cabin fever and he needed to get me out of the house and away from being afraid and there you are in the sunshine and the sun and quote the virus was less impactful we were told right when you were outside and kept a distance and you didn't have to wear the mask so that that was a source of joy but the essays went and seemed to write themselves and i never wrote three or four and put them in a can and guess what i'm writing new essays under the the umbrella of slice of life and I'm still not ahead of myself. Somehow it just speaks to me and they're whatever I feel that week. Well, one thing you, you didn't mention is when the dog was walking you, you also found out things about your neighborhood you didn't know before. Uh, I only lived here eight years and didn't pay much attention because you, you get out of your driveway, you're in a rush to go to work. And all of a sudden, you know, oh, well, look how their house is decorated. Oh, they have a dog. Oh, what, what's your name? You know? How long have you lived here? Eight years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a terrible thing not to know your neighbors. You know, you know them from the right side, the left side. But if you're not careful, everyone else is a stranger. And COVID right. kind of helped strangers become friends or at least better acquaintances, if you will. Plus, at least those guys you would wave to, at least, even if you didn't say hello to them right. on your way out. Another of your, your essays was on technology and community in the time of Corona. And in it, you were talking about if you asked the question if the virus kindled the creative genes inside of us and inspired us to rethink and redo. And I, taking by what you've talked about so far, that in fact it does. It forces you into, th well, into one, thinking. Well, one of the sad thing. things or 
inevitable parts of war. And I do believe we were at a, a war of a different nature. We're fighting this virus. Is we rely on technology and innovation and things that might take years. All of a sudden, boom, we're, we know we have to put into action, you know, in a shorter period of time. Now, the vaccine seemed to come at lightning speed. and Maybe it did. But really, the research was 10 years in the making. And that's how they were able to get it. But it still was a monumental effort to get that virus. Now, getting people to accept its safety and its efficacy, that's a whole different matter. But when you look at any war, penicillin or, or rubber, or they come up with these innovations that are needed to solve a problem in war. But then there are applications for peacetime. And I think Zoom, you know, who knows when our kids will start laughing at us. Oh, you use Zoom. We have <laughs> something so much better. Right. Um, but that's what's going to happen. Because Zoom was around for a while, but it wasn't fully adopted, right? But then all of a sudden, oh, my God, we, we, it's like the term Kleenex, the tissue paper. All of a sudden, we got to learn how to do Zoom. We got off our duff to do it. But otherwise, we really had no use for it. We were fine with FaceTime or just an old-fashioned phone call. But a lot of seniors so, ended up learning how to use Zoom, too, during that time. They did. Otherwise, they would be woefully isolated. Right. And I think they some of them realized that. So at the synagogue, I actually had volunteers who would go to people's home, masked, of course, and teach these seniors how to use the Zoom. And they had these computers that were basically paperweights. You know, how do you get on? You know, how do you create an app? How do you how do you sign on? And by golly, they learned it. And right now my adult ed classes the preference is to do it by Zoom. And we're talking people 70 years old and older. They don't have to drive. They turn on the computer. So they're comfortable with it, the ones that chose to become comfortable, for sure. You talk also that essay in terms of if Judaism was irrelevant, why would we be spending so much time making sure that people do stay connected? And again, you're always bifurcating, and I back to that word again, between the general That's concept, your new word of it the is day. the word of the day, <laughs> is that you're using it to apply to people's word of the day bifurcation. <laughs> bifurcation. I just like it. I don't know, uh, but but here you have a, a thing where people want to stay connected through rituals, through uh, important ceremonies, and how does that relate to Judaism the way you explained it in the essay? And that was part of well, that technology. Well, a few essay. things happened. So let's just say COVID happened, right? Now people can't come in person. So how do we put out the message of Shabbat, of the Sabbath? It's not just about Zoom. Now I have to be aware of, you know, looking to the camera and speaking and, and all the performance things. And then we would get an online audience that was actually bigger for a period of time than if they came in person. And now it's bifurcated or hybrid or oh, whatever word you, you want to use. my word. How dare you? Where, <laughs> appropriate <laughs> your word. Where, you know, now they're back in person, thank right. God, but there's still a number of people who aren't. And I think it's the judicious use of technology that is what we've learned so that it it adds to the experience and doesn't become just the experience. So when the high holidays came up in 2020, we couldn't meet in person. And I remember having the discussion with my lay leaders at the beginning of June. They go, oh, Rabbi, we're going to be in person by September. 
I said, I don't know. And they say, well, we'll wait. I said, well, I really can't wait because if this is what's going to happen, then I'm going to have to make recordings and I'm going to have to do this and that. And it was a whole production. And of course, it turned out we couldn't meet in person that first year. And then you get a little further on where some of the people are ready to come back and some aren't. And what do you do? So there was a whole transition. We're now to a point in society where people are now willing to travel. But six months ago, a year, no, they weren't. But now it's like, oh, my God. So the technology is there. Some of it is here to stay. But I think people really prefer to go back to their their ways. They really do. They want to be in person. They don't necessarily want to be in Zoom. They want to travel. They don't want to just read about a country. They want to go to the grocery store. Maybe they're used to having food delivered, but they're certainly not going to wash it. <laughs> <laughs> or let it sit out front. Uh, if or let it sit out front to be a couple sanitized. Days, yeah. Yeah, our, our great-grandchildren are going to think we were really silly. Yeah, well, but that's all right. Let them, let them poo-poo go through a, a pandemic and figure it out quicker than we did. Exactly. <laughs> well, another of your essays had to do with being grateful in the time of corona. When we say corona, we're not talking about the beer. We're obviously talking about the virus. Right. I think that's something that people, they get caught up in daily life, and it usually takes a major event or a major life event, a society or personal, that reminds people to be grateful for what they have. And what could have happened and didn't happen in some cases. From your position as a as a rabbi and a writer of these essays, would you say that being grateful was one of those more important points you were making in your essays? Yeah, there were several themes, gratitude being one of them. One was faith and fear, love and hate. One was resiliency versus, you know, uh, falling apart. You might say it was a bifurcation of emotions because you look at them and I was always trying to move people forward rather than backward. I was trying to move people into hope rather than hopelessness, into um, laughter and love instead of hate and sadness because both emotions were always present. They're always present now, but under the crucible of something like COVID, where you're stuck at home, it was intense. And I would talk to people and I'm so lonely, you know, and, and, you know, I'm sick and no one can, can come see me. And, and, and so those whole feelings were what I was pushing against. And so it wasn't just be grateful because it could be worse. It was about the mental capacity of us to determine how we're going to face our adversity. So there was a book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, wrote that classic book. There he was in Auschwitz. And he said, you know, the only thing he could really control was his attitude. And he developed a whole philosophy of psychiatry. And in many ways, that, that would ring in my head when I thought about COVID. What can we do to stop this virus? We're not a scientist. We can wear our masks, we can wash our hands. That's our part. But other than that, you know, do we live in fear or can we, you know, I didn't want to say turn off the news, but to sometimes I would say stop watching the news so much because it's ginning you up and find things to be grateful for. Find the simple pleasures. Call your mom, so to speak. 
because we were all feeling isolated, alone, and living in fear. And it, it's it's beyond COVID, but it was much more intense during that time. And so that's why that message was there. Who had your back while you had everybody else's back? Well, there there was quite frankly a lot of times when I did feel alone. And sometimes I think maybe those essays were preaching to myself. There were a lot of clergy and other other professionals who retired early because of the stress of COVID. And, you know, you give a sermon in person, good job, Rabbi, you do one on Zoom. What do you get, like a little like or something? There was no interpersonal feedback in the loop and the dynamic of trying to be a good rabbi. But also, you know, life is with people. So there I am at home doing my job in front of this computer instead of being in the synagogue and driving and meeting with people. So who had my back? At times I felt mm, no one was really having my back. I just have to be there for other people. But the reality is there were a lot of people who had my back. You know, my, my wife, my family, my co-clergy, uh, Cantor Jessica Hutchings, she was able to figure out the technology piece. And then we would work together trying to decide how we're going to keep this congregation together as a community. We would just dream up stuff, whether it was an adult dad thing or her reading bedtime stories to her child or cooking with Cantor or we did something in the middle of the day that we would talk about current events and and we would just throw it at the wall and see what would stick. And people, before they had Zoom fatigue, uh, <laughs> they were looking for things to do. Right. On During Hanukkah, we thought, okay, let's light the candle every night and every night we'll have a 10 minute program. And like 200 people would tune in. You know, we kept it and maybe I get 20 people now, but during COVID, People were looking like, we want to be with people to celebrate Hanukkah, Rabbi. And that's how we did it. So um, I, I think when you get to the question, who had my back? It's one of those things where we're friends and, and the process itself kind of was with me. And then just really close friends that I could commiserate and plan things and do things. But it was a very challenging time, absolutely, for me personally. Uh, that I had to find a way to do my job in a very, very different way to be not only effective, but to find that sense of self-fulfillment as a rabbi, that what I was doing mattered. Um, try to visit someone in the hospital when you're not allowed to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So you call up the nurse. Do you have an iPad? Oh, well, we'll go get one. We'll put me on FaceTime, and then I talk to the patient. That's what I, That's what I would be doing believe it or not. So workarounds worked to the extent that I could work around, but it was definitely a challenging time to be a rabbi or any profession that was with people like a teacher and so forth. Last question, we have about a minute. What was the most important lesson you learned from writing these essays? I think the most important lesson, well, there's two. One is the lessons themselves, that there's a certain wisdom that was within me that I never actually articulated. And so, as I said, the essay spoke to me as much as I think they spoke to other people. So, Rabbi, heal thyself, so to speak. And then I just think that 
life in general seems to be this battle between fear and faith. People can be so led astray by their fears. We all have fears. We have fear of growing old, fear of not having a paycheck come in when we're retired, fear of getting sick. And you, you have those people who live in fear. And then the people who live in faith, or you can use faith as a substitute for hope or love or positivity, if you will, somehow those people, maybe they don't live longer, maybe they're not healthier, maybe they are. But regardless, the quality of their life, however long it is, is so much better. So once you rather choose to be grateful, more loving, more caring, more resilient, that's a constant theme of the book. And I think it's a lesson that I need to remind myself, and the book serves to echo that too. Choose life. Choose love. In the time of corona or the time in which you live. Be a positive thinking person and let that shape your vision and view of life and always move forward because that's where you'll find your strength. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Rabbi Sanford Axelrod. He's spiritual leader of Congregation Near Tamid in Henderson and author of Love in the Time of Corona available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Rabbi Axelrod, go to lvnirtamid.org. And Rabbi, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, my pleasure. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Anything you want us to be.